This is Channel 9. This is like big news. I, all right. The Gospel, sal, uh, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 96. Uh, one of my favorite statements from Tuesday's lesson was this. And it came at the very end of the lesson on the fact that our Father is sovereign. How great to have the promises of a compassionate Father who has the perfect power to pull it all off. How great is that? Every aspect, every promise He's made, every command He's given, every sense of justice and righteousness that He reveals to us in Scripture, all of it, all His activities, Everything uh, is from a Father in Heaven that's truly compassionate. And again, the principle is how great is it to have the promises of a compassionate Father who has the perfect power to pull it all off. And that was on the coattails of the Spirit really saying that there are lots of promises from grace motivated by love to deliver us, to sanctify us in time. Uh, and we should have the utmost trust in this person, our Father. Our last two lessons were on grace and love regarding our fathers, whether speaking of our Father in heaven or our spiritual slash earthly fathers. The entirety of it was really grace and love. As I was listening to Tuesday evening's message, I was struck by the big picture message that the Spirit's been giving each of us on this particular topic. Go to 1 John 1, 1. 1 John 1, verse 1. So I was struck by the big picture that the Spirit's been sort of... He keeps us coming back to it. We go in the weeds a little bit, He comes back up. We go in the weeds a little bit, he comes back up and he says, do not lose the big picture or else you'll lose your bearing to all the things that we're learning. 1 John 1, one big picture item. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That is a running analogy in the Bible to light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So the perspective to get us kick-started this evening is this. <clears throat> God is light, 1 John 1.5. God is unity, or 1 James 2.19. We often learn about God by beginning with His attributes and then pointing back to Him. However, and Him is in quotes because I want you to think about His person, that God is a person. There's a reason why we call God the Father a person. It's because He's not a bunch of attributes. He's a 
person. So we often learn about God by beginning with his attributes and then pointing back to the person, him. However, in the end, what he wants us to realize is that these attributes are the results of the eternal God being who he is, intrinsically light. We do not construct God, quote-unquote, out of a list of attributes, a la existentialism. In other words, I have experienced him this way, so therefore he is. He predates all of us. He's eternal, remember. So we do not, quote, construct God out of a list of attributes any more than the human eye can construct white light out of a rainbow. In other words, while we may appreciate the colors on the spectrum, there's nothing as complete and perfect as pure white light. The same goes with God. And you have to think of the source. We're not sourcing God. In other words, God doesn't somehow materialize because we're able to see in Scripture this spectrum, this wavelength, this wavelength, this wavelength, this wavelength of light, and then we make white light. No, you always have to think the other way around. Do not be egocentric. Remember that God is eternal. And so we're just seeing Him for who He is. We're seeing bits of who He is. But we don't want to make that, that mistake of trying to construct God from our own experience with Him, from our own doctrines about Him. That may seem a bit lofty, but what the Spirit's trying to say to you is very important. What He's saying is that since God is perfect light, and there's no darkness in Him at all, consider that, there's no darkness in Him at all, then we must digest the fact that every attribute we know about Him is a part of everything intrinsically, eternally complete and perfect. Let me say it again. Since God is perfect light and there's no darkness in Him at all, then we must digest the fact that every attribute we know about Him is a part of everything intrinsically, eternally complete and perfect. For example, on Tuesday, the Spirit taught us this, <clears throat> light and synchronicity. Mercy is one facet of God's light. If we apply the, quote, prism of systematic theology, we might, quote, see mercy as a particular wavelength or color of light, which is fine for study purposes, but we ought never divorce it from the unity of the light himself or his other infinite attributes. In other words, we don't learn about... It's really hard to teach. I hope this is coming across, but... Again, mercy is one facet of God's light. If we apply the prism of systematic theology... I just was thinking of a prism. White light goes into a prism, one of those little pyramidal things, and out pops the rainbow, essentially. That's fine, because that's how we have to digest bitwise the eternal, infinite God. So that's fine for study purposes, but we ought never divorce it from the unity of the light himself or his other infinite attributes. In other words, he's not sometimes merciful and sometimes not. He's always merciful. 
He's not sometimes loving and sometimes not. He's always loving. He's always just. He's always righteous. He's always, you fill in the blank. He's everything you know about Him. He's always unity. And that, I think, is hard for human beings. I think we like to put God in a box, in other words. If we do relate to just a single aspect of His holiness, say, for example, His justice or His discipline. I know a lot of people that have religious backgrounds, and that's what they thought God was. They thought He was just a, you know, a big guy with a beard in heaven with a gavel. And said, I'm just waiting for you to screw up. There you go, boom, judgment. And that's how they, quote, knew God. Can you imagine what an abomination that is to God? What an abomination that kind of religion is to our Father in heaven? It's incredible. I mean, what, if you're a dad, how would you like if your kids felt that way about you? It'd be a horrible thing to, to actually realize that that's what your kids thought about you, that you were just some gavel-toting, you know, jerk, basically. So if we do relate to just a single aspect of His holiness, and let's just say, for example, His justice and or His discipline, we have artificially put God in a box. In other words, we've gone from a wavelength to Him. Does He discipline us? Yeah. Does He have justice? Yeah. But that's not Him alone. Making room for darkness. See, if we put God in a box, now we have a big problem. We have a big problem because He's infinite, for starters. If we put God in a box, we have made those areas in our lives where God has been, quote, boxed out, areas of darkness. It is then that we begin wrestling with darkness out of perceived human necessity. Contrarily, if we have the fullness of light, we do not wrestle with darkness. I hope you get the visual. If we put God in a box then we end up wrestling with darkness. And the only thing left to wrestle with darkness is our human strength, which we know just makes us weary. The whole funny thing is, is you don't have to do any of that. That's what he's been teaching us. He's saying, I'm perfect light. There's no stumbling in me. I love you. I'm your dad. I'm just trying to do right by you. I don't want you boxing me out like a little adolescent moron. I'm light. There's no darkness in me. So any problems you have, anxiety, all that kind of garbage that comes along with darkness, all the things that we might relate to bondage, it's not for me. That's dead. So this is why certain verses take a long time for people to fully grasp. It's not because the word is somehow remiss when it comes to certain people. For it has never changed. Think of Hebrews 13.8. You know, Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not like the Word has changed. Rather, it's because for certain people, the Word, the light, has been boxed out experientially. For example, how many of you have struggled with the following verse? Go to 1 Peter 5.7. Now, I need you to be honest with yourselves. It doesn't matter. Don't look to your left and right. Just be honest with yourselves. How many of you have struggled with this particular verse? And you're going to say, I've never struggled with that. I love that verse. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? 1 Peter 5, 7. It's funny because the so-called great blessing verses sometimes give people the most fits. Why? Because they're not getting the blessing. 
and they're saying, what am I, God, what am I the, uh, you know, not to upset anybody, but you know that saying, the redheaded stepchild, dad doesn't like me as much, you know, this type of thing. Somehow I don't get to cast my anxieties on God, on him. No, that's not it at all. So what say you of 1 Peter 5, 7, which reads, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Sounds like a wonderful thing, doesn't it? And what's your problem? Why are you anxious today? Why were you upset? Why were you worried? Why were you anything like that? What's the problem? I thought it, when you read it, it's so wonderful. Why don't you just live it then? We just love to throw verses like that around, don't we? But how many of us actually benefit from them? I mean, really. How many of us actually benefit from them? I'm being totally serious right now. Remember, knowing is not living. For these are very two very different things. Something Scripture reveals to us. Hold your thumb. Let's make this distinction using Scripture. Go to James 2.19. I alluded to it earlier. James 2.19. I'm going to let Scripture do our talking this evening as it should be. So, knowing and living are two different things. Knowing and believing. Knowing and trusting. These are two different things. You can know a lot of things and not trust them. You can know a lot of people and not necessarily trust them. James 2.19 You believe that God is one. Good for you. You do well. You know what? The demons also believe and shudder. Ooh. (laughs) Oh. In other words, big deal. Big deal. So you know what demons know. Even they have a certain respect for God. They shudder. Again, big deal. There are a lot of so-called Christians that have a certain fear and respect for God, but they are still in bondage. Why? Because while they, quote, know they ought to fear or respect God, they haven't yet, let's use the word that Jesus and Paul and Peter like to use, they haven't yet repented from their self-lives. And the paradox to these people is that God doesn't come through for them, at least not in the way that is plainly stated, or at least not in the way that they think He would, you know, given the likes of 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all my anxieties on Him because He cares for me, right? Oh, wait, hold your horses there. You don't actually believe that. That's a punchline for you. That's not something you actually live. That's something you know to be true. You've seen the Scripture. Because if you lived it, technically, you'd never be anxious for anything. Think of the blog. Be anxious for what? Nothing. Ah, It was just that easy. No, the flesh isn't giving up. It's like that guy you wrestle with, you know? It's just ain't giving up. Kind of like that wiry, strong guy. You're like, oh, is this guy still on me? I used to, my best buddy in high school was like that. He was skinny as a rail like Sean. I would wrestle him like, where does his strength come from? I'm serious. I'm like, how is he still on me? He's like, glue. He's like wiry, strong. He's like that. That's the flesh. Like, it's like, how are you still on me? Because it's not giving up. It's got like grip strength and... I don't know what the deal is. 
That's the flesh. He's not about to give up. As long as you have that body and you're alive. So the paradox of these people is that God doesn't come through for them. And why is that? Well, let's allow Scripture to answer that question. Go to James 1.5. James 1.5. Why doesn't He come through for them? Or at least, why do these people not realize these wonderful promises of God from their Father in Heaven who loves them? They've seen the Scripture. Why don't they live it? James 1.5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. However, here's the big but, but he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You know, as a parent, sometimes you, you tell your kid, all right, you give him like these incrementally important jobs. And you say, all right, you think he can handle this job? And you're like, ah, oh, I can do that, Dad. And every so often you're like looking out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh, what's he doing? You run out there because they don't do it correctly. Well, what's that? That's doubt. That's not having faith. That's the scene here. That if you're saying you believe that you can cast all your anxieties on your Father in Heaven who loves you, but you're looking over your shoulder and you're second-guessing and you're making those special provisions. Just, if, just in case God doesn't come through for me, I'm going to do these other things, like my safety nets, my personal safety net. Because, you know, God might not pull through. Well, that's not faith. That's called dipsukos. That's double-mindedness. You don't have faith, therefore you are still anxious because you don't have complete faith. Sound right? But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What? That's not Pastor Red. That's Scripture, my friends. You ought not expect anything, unless you're asking by faith, unless you actually have the faith that you are able to cast all your anxieties on him. So this takes us right back to our previous principle up here on the board. If we put God in a box, we have made those areas in our lives where God has been boxed out, areas of darkness. It is then that we begin wrestling with darkness out of perceived human necessity. Contrarily, if we have the fullness of light, we do not wrestle with darkness. Now, back to that verse that people love to quote. Go to 1 Peter 5.7. 1 Peter 5.7. <clears throat> So I hope you see what the Spirit's teaching us this evening. It's very simple, but you've got to be humble about it. You've just got to see it all as truth in your own way. Look in the mirror, see, see it for what it is in your own life. 1 Peter 5.7, people love this verse, but how many actually benefit from it? Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Do you know why verses like this one haven't made sense to some of you? I mean, it makes sense, but, you know, practically, why doesn't it make sense? Like, it sounds right. I'm just kind of, I guess I'm just kind of waiting around for it. It's easy. It's because you've still got God in some perverted little box. You've still got Him in some little box somewhere, somehow. Possibly the result of learned religion in the past. 
But that's not the issue, is it? No, it's not. For we know that God gives grace to the humble. So the secret to transcending merely knowing the likes of, say, 1 Peter 5.7, is actually living in it. And if you're a diligent student, a true disciple, then you've obeyed what's been coming from this pulpit for quite some time now. What might that be? What might that be? Well, how about this one? How about read your Bibles? How about that one? If you're not doing this regularly by now, I don't even know how many commands you're breaking. I know you're breaking Hebrews 13, 17, which is submit to the authorities, submit to the pastor who says, read your Bibles. I don't have enough time to go over every passage you do. So read your Bibles. Read the books I write. Read the blogs I write. They're all part of His grace through this vessel to you. And if you're not doing that stuff, what are you doing? What do you expect? Oh, dipsukas. No, seriously. And don't say, oh, my job is so tough, I can't get to it. Seriously, aren't you the person who had just had a barbecue last weekend? Aren't you the one that was just out driving around, you know, wee, on your motorcycle? Or your bicycle? Or, you know, you're at the park with your dogs frolicking around? Oh, there's Pastor. Oh, my God, I'm so tired. Oh, so tired, I swear. Look at this funniest thing. I had this app. I had to book covert arrogance right there on my phone. What's wrong with people? You know what's wrong. And you know why you don't have the promises. You know why you're not delivered yet. You're not even following the first, not even the headline. Not even the headline. Well, then what do you expect? You think you're going to do it on your own in the darkness? Good luck. Read your Bibles. This is a summary. Read for context. Don't just read little verses that you like, like 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all my anxiety on him because he cares for me. Ooh, is that awesome? I think I'm going to text my friend that one. Isn't that awesome? It is if you, understand, if you have faith, yeah. <laughs> Read for context. Observe the people. Accept clearly stated theology as gold refined by fire, Revelation 3.18. And keep away from hyper-doctrinalization. Stop getting stuck in the weeds. Pray for faith. For God gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. That's kind of what he's been saying on the back end. Right? The guy that's driving the bus is saying, hey, remember this stuff? Do this stuff and you're in good shape. Yeah, yeah. Hey, everybody's in the back. (laughs) Facebook! Woo! It's, quote, funny because I wonder how many people forego the likes of 1 Peter 5, 6 in their instant gratification complex and their awful impatience and just preferring to skip to verse 7. For example, a good place to start when scratching your head, muttering, quote, why hasn't God taken my anxiety away yet? Is to literally read the full context, at least more context, of that passage. Look at, me, look at verse 6. Read verse 6 with me. Therefore, what? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. You mean casting wasn't the first? That's why it's not a capital, by the way, because that wasn't actually the start of the sentence. Imagine that. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God 
that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Oh, there's that dogged humility thing again. Yep. So what the Word of God tells us is that if we lack humility, then we lack faith. If we lack faith, we ought to expect nothing from the Lord. James 1, 5-8. That's easy enough to string together. We just looked at all the Scripture. So we ought to expect nothing from the Lord, including being able to actually benefit from casting our anxieties on Him. Allah, 1 Peter 5, 7. Wonderful verse, but it doesn't do us any good unless we're humble and have faith that it's actually true. Because you're going to look over your shoulder. You're not going to actually trust. So it's going to be sort of a moot point. It's going to look good on paper, and it's going to look good in some encouraging text or something. <laughs> but, I mean, come on, people. So the Word of God, given the perspective of the perfect light, remember, think of this. The Word of God, given the perspective of the perfect light, capital L, is flawless. It's flawless. There's nothing wrong with 1 Peter 5, 7. There's something terribly wrong with you. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the Word of God. The Word of God is flawless. Think about that. It's flawless. So God didn't make any mistakes. And when He says, listen, I, I made you the way I made you. I gave you the parents I gave you. I gave you the pastor I gave you. I gave you the life I gave you. I gave you, I gave you a job. I even gave you those furry little creatures that run around your house. Right? The ones that chew up the kitchen table and you feel like throttling? Those ones. Or the ones that poop in the neighbor's yard? The ones not us? <laughs> I gave you those too. Those are all blessings from me. Well, why the heck don't we trust them then? So the Word of God, given the perspective of the perfect light, is flawless. And I hope you understand what the Spirit's pulling together lately in our lessons. Again, we're still big picture. There's a lot being stated here, and it simply breaks my heart that some of you will remain flippant about it. But, so be it. Honestly. It's heartbreaking to know. I don't, I don't guess. I know. The Word tells me. That some of you are going to be you're going to walk away from tonight and still be flippant about it. You don't understand my life. You live in a cave. All right. So God made a mistake when He chose me to teach you. You are the dipsukos, the double-minded, who will go on complaining about life while continuing on in the flesh with no one else to blame but yourself. On the flip side, there are those of you who will listen to your pastor's voice, who's trying to lead you to that place of freedom that is unique to living by faith, as Paul alludes to in Romans 1.17. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm not your enemy. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Sometimes. So to finish our thoughts on the present example in Scripture, go to 1 Peter 5.6 again. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now, seeing it all as truth in the light. Seeing it all as truth in the light. 
throwing us up here on the board, throwing all our anxieties on him works because by faith we say, well, we've given it over to him and he'll take it from here. That was part of the whole thread on forgiveness. (laughs) I forgive him. This is between them and the Lord at this point. (sighs) Yeah, that's how it works. But will God discipline them enough? I think I need to step in and discipline. <laughs> will they really know how, how badly they hurt me this time? So we might say, well, we've given it over to Him, and He'll take it from here. If we wrestle with it in our own flesh or with our own flesh because we are arrogant, we don't have the promises of deliverance. Rather, we have darkness to strive against, something we cannot overcome on our own. You can't do it. You can't do it. Try, I mean, what are you going to do, swing in the dark? You can't do anything with it. You're, dark, you're in darkness. You cannot overcome the darkness. It's an impossibility. But we try because we're arrogant. So throwing all our anxieties on Him works because we, by faith we say things like, well, we've given it over to Him and... He'll take it from here. If we wrestle with it with our own flesh because we are arrogant, we don't have the promises of deliverance. Rather, we have darkness to strive against, something we cannot overcome on our own. So it's literally the definition of futility. As we've learned all week now, our Father is the same one that Jesus depended on wholly during during His humiliation. I mean, that's why we studied that out in great detail. Our Father is the same one that Jesus depended on, holy, for grace. Our Father adopted us, blessed us, comforts us, gives us inheritance, etc., as we learn from Scripture. So it begs the question, I mean, what more could someone want as proof? (laughs) What else do you want from Him? It's not as if He hasn't given us proof, as Jesus alluded to. John 10, 37 to 38. I mean, what do you want from Him? What more do you want from Him? Do you want Him just to stand in front of you? Well, then it's no longer faith, is it? What more do you want? John 10, 37 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do do them, or if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand what the Father, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, go ahead, look at my works. Father says, you know how many works I've done for you? You know how many things I've done for you just today? And you still don't have, you still don't trust me? I mean, what else do I got to do? It's not as if our Father hasn't given us ample proof of His love for us. Mm, The cross? I mean, that should be sufficient. Never seems to be. Even so, the flesh does not want to submit to his authority or his divinely delegated fathers. It's not as if the Father hasn't given us ample proof of his love for us. You may say, that seems crazy that the Father in heaven that loves me gave me my jackass of a father. You may say that. But you'd be out of line. So says Scripture, not me. I mean, I teach the Word of God. That's my goal here. So says Scripture. You'd be questioning God's authority, God's sovereign right to 
command that you submit to whoever he puts in authority over you. A humble heart is a submissive heart, an obedient heart, a repentant heart. This holds true whether the context is at salvation, positional sanctification, or afterwards, experiential sanctification. The truth is that God demands our humility. Arrogance cannot deliver you, only God can, leaving you with a single option, humility. You can strive against the wind, you can wrestle with the darkness, or you can say, I give up, and God says, good, trying to get you there for decades. Arrogance cannot deliver you, only God can, leaving you with a single option, humility. A saved, delivered person is an obedient one. An obedient person enjoys God's peace in time. A disobedient one doesn't. It's the funniest thing. You think about adolescence, right? They're perfect examples for us because what do they do? They know, they know best, right? They know better. And they out there, I'm going to do what I want because that's what makes me happy. And they couldn't be more what? Miserable. I'm going to buck authority because this is what makes me happy. Bandana. No, wait, wait. In the old 80s, you put it on your thigh. Remember that one, DJ? Remember you used to do that? DJ's like, I never did that. Chachi. Remember you had it on his thigh? Right? Cigarettes right here. I'm a rebel. James Dean. You're miserable. That's what you are. Call a spade a spade. You're miserable. Why? I think God, the light, knows what he's talking about when he said, hey, listen, if you buck my authority, if you disobey me, all my promises are off. I'm only going to deliver you if you obey me. And the only person that ever obeys him is a humble person. It's not rocket science, right? I mean, so as it turns out, a trusting person is a delivered person. And this person is enveloped in God's light, for he is the light. That reality is, as I've been teaching, as Scott's been teaching, that reality, living in the light, is our sanctification. Living by faith is our sanctification. There's not a bunch of check marks that you go, oh man, I'm, you know, I'm at spiritual maturity. Why? Because you've got a bunch of stuff memorized? Big deal. Even the demons know God is one and shudder. They know facts too, probably more than you, frankly, because they're smarter than you. He is light. So when we abide in that, that reality is our sanctification in a nutshell. It's about being given something that allows us to rightly relate to our Father in heaven, namely, Christ's own heart and mind. It's about becoming something that you weren't before, at least not experientially. It's about becoming Christ-like for the sake of others rather than for your own sakes even. Yet the flesh tries to hijack these magnificent transformations at every pass. Why is that? Because the flesh, you ready for this? The flesh prefers to bless itself. The flesh prefers to bless itself. Don't worry about it, God, I got it right here. I'm going to bless myself in this case. I know what's better for me than you do. I'm going to go tramp along with girlfriend number 548 and then wonder at the end of it why I'm a train wreck. 
Well, boyfriend number 438. Obviously, the boy has more problems than the girls. You like that, girls? 400 versus 5. I'm saying. I'm going to do all these things because I know that's what's good for me. And even though you didn't bring these people into my life, that's what I deem is good for me. I'm going to completely disobey your authority, those that were in authority over me, my own father maybe that told me in good advice. Don't do that thing. I'm going to disobey all that stuff. I'm going to bless myself because I think God may have forgotten about me. The flesh spits on our Father's blessings. That's right. The flesh spits on our Father's blessings. And it's vile. But the flesh is vile. Remember, the flesh doubts the goodness of God, but call it out for what it is, a liar. Stand firm in the faith. The flesh is a liar. It tells you, oh, definitely do this thing. Oh, definitely do that thing. That's not God the Holy Spirit trying to convict you otherwise. That's your imagination. Definitely do this thing. It'll make you happy. And lo and behold, you're a miserable person without any peace in your life. And you sit there and scratch your head. What happened to 1 Peter 5, 7? What if I cast, why can't I cast on my anxiety? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so miserable? Why do you think, oh, arrogant one? Think about it this way as we finish up our review on fathers. <clears throat> and it's important regarding fathers, not just our Father in Heaven, but our fathers, plural, because there's a delegated chain of command through fathers in time. And it's important that we understand this. It's not just enough to say you trust the Father. If you trust Him, then you trust His delegates. You have to. Not that they're perfect. That you are willing to submit to them. And if they screw up, then they have to answer to God. That's the way the chain of command goes. You ever been to a workplace where the subordinates act, except for unions, you ever been to a workplace where the subordinates tell the boss how to run the business? And when the boss screws up, the boss has to go, I'm so sorry, my subordinates. No. Who chews the boss's butt? The boss's boss. And that's the way it goes in a chain of command. Okay. So it's not about whether or not the authorities even are always right. It's about what say you of God the Father who delegates to all these authorities. Our fathers attack. The flesh hates any form of godly fatherhood because it implies humility, respect, and obedience. In fact, fatherhood in general is offensive to the flesh. Again, The flesh hates any form of godly fatherhood because it implies humility, respect, and obedience. In fact, fatherhood in general, just the concept of it, is offensive to the flesh. I've been giving this a lot of thought lately, and I wanted to share a couple of things with you. And I'm just going to be speaking about Christians right now, even though many of the things I'm about to say trace back to unbelievers too, but I don't want to deal with them right now. The most arrogant people I know are the ones that struggle with the most with their fathers. The most arrogant, and I'm talking about God the Father as well, starting with God the Father, which makes total sense. But as we've learned from the pulpit, it doesn't end. It goes right through His delegated chain of command. Arrogance seeks to destroy any authority. The most arrogant people I know are the ones that struggle the most with their fathers. 
So when we surveyed fatherhood on Father's Day, we looked at this list up here. We have our perfect father in heaven, but we also have a multitude of fathers in our lives, spiritual fathers, apostles, shepherds, etc., fathers in earthly families, father figures maybe even. You might say that might be someone that's loosely in authority over you. Again, the most arrogant people are the ones that struggle the most in this area. And as such, they often become like women. And I'm talking about the Tashuka type. You know, the anti-authority types. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about men and women. I'm talking about men and women. They are the ones who buck male authority specifically in their lives. And as the Spirit has pointed out, if you have authority issues with your earthly fathers, the imperfect ones, then you have issues with your heavenly one, given the simple fact that He ordained them. It's that simple. God ordained your fathers. And guess what? You're already hit newsflash. Every single one of them is imperfect. So what do we do? Do we cross-examine every last one of them every waking moment? No. That would be futility, for starters. But more importantly, that would be against God's will. So chew on this right here. The issue with fathers isn't whether or not they are worthy of your respect. It's whether or not you are worthy to submit to their authority. Chew on that. The issue with fathers isn't whether or not they are worthy of your respect. At least not as far as you're concerned. It's whether or not you are worthy to submit to their authority. So you see, the worthiness is actually with you. It's a privilege to submit to God's authority. Say that to yourself tonight. It's a privilege to submit to God's authority. And some people would say, but I do. But you really don't. Because delegated authority is the same thing as His authority. It's a privilege to submit to God's authority. Most people may never understand that statement. But it's very true, my friends. Remember, God has qualified every believer to obedience. So, to disobey, blaming your imperfect father for whatever, is to prove yourself the very reason for your own misery. There's almost a, there's almost a guaranteed misery when you blame other people for your misery. <laughs> it's guaranteed. And the thing is, that's not the way God designed deliverance. On that note, here's the oversimplified viewpoint the Spirit gave us on Sunday. So what about imperfect earthly fathers? Well, we can focus on their imperfections resulting in misery, or we can focus on how God uses them to our benefit and His glory resulting in blessing. Go to Deuteronomy 32.4. He also gave us some scripture to chew on. Deuteronomy 32.4. So we have this, you know, this fundamental choice. I don't know about you, but if I were to water down the, the point on the board, I see misery and I see blessing. Well, which one do I want? I want blessing. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it says, you know, don't focus on the wrong things. Remember Philippians 4.8? 
In other words, focus on the good things. Everybody's, you know, imperfect except God, so. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Yeah, he's perfect, and all his ways are just. And who puts you in the family you're in? Who puts you in this congregation? Who puts you in the workplace? Who puts you wherever he puts you? He did. And guess what? All his ways are just. He wasn't unjust in putting you there. Only God knows how arrogant you are. Only God knows how much a certain situation would, I don't want to use the word provoke, but it's probably not the, the worst because uh, Paul uses it in Romans 9-11. through 11. God only knows how He might provoke you to salvation, whether it's positional or experiential. He has to provoke you a certain way. He has to come at you a certain way. And if that means you had to have a complete jackass for a father, just so you'd be saved and spend an eternity with him, so be it. His ways are perfect. Imagine that. Just You might say, you know what's funny? Because I think you're a jackass. Fine. I don't actually have a problem with that. If I'm the one who provokes you to deliverance, if I'm the one who loves you enough to provoke you to become your enemy because I tell you the truth, fine. I'm not here to be friends. Honest to goodness, I'm really not. My commands, my guidance, the Spirit says teach them the truth. Do what's right. Don't seek approbation. Seek righteousness. Seek my will. And if, frankly, if you do that, any father will attest, if you do that, <laughs> you're going to be despised. You want to hear a funny statistic, though, just to lighten the mood a little bit? This is true. I used to take a lot of courses in uh, public speaking because I was you know, speaking in public a lot. I don't know, that's not the that's not the thing, by the way, but it loosened you up, so that's good. I don't have much material, so maybe I should save the rest. This is true, though. Seriously, they said if you go in front of any audience, doesn't matter who you are or who the audience is. Like roughly, don't quote me. Fifteen percent of the audience won't like you for no other reason that you showed up and it's you standing on the stage. They don't even know you. They go, I don't like him. He's bald. What kind of guy's bald? And wears a pink shirt or whatever that color that is, that queer looking color, right? They wouldn't like it. Why? I haven't even spoken yet. And no matter what you're going to do, they don't like you. That's a statistic, truth be told. How I got on that, I have no idea. But I wanted to lighten it up a little bit. Oh, I know what it was. You're not always going to be liked. Fine. 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 I mean, you don't answer to the people. You answer to God. So, to synthesize, what about imperfect earthly fathers? If you can say in your heart that you trust God the Father in heaven, then why would you distrust His choice of authority in your life? If the perfect Father placed you in submission to an imperfect Father on earth, then the situation is perfect for you. Our enemies, the flesh, the world, Satan, are encouraging us to dismiss 
our fathers because of their imperfections. However, God never says that a father's failures disqualify him from leading his subordinates or his children or whatever it might be under the auspices of authority orientation. If this were the case, every father in the Bible besides God would stand disqualified. And that would be in stark contradiction to Scripture on obedience to authority. I mean, slaves to masters, children to parents, blah, blah, blah. In a practical sense, father's heart. But carrying the responsibility of being a father is difficult enough without the added pressure of being cross-examined by your subordinates. Those who perpetrate this heinous act are actually foremost revealing a distrust towards God in heaven, not their fathers, and all earthly types are in view. And I think of um, Hebrews 13, 17. The last thing is, it would be unprofitable for you to not submit. It would be unprofitable for you. You've got to think about that. So Sunday's Father's Day special lesson and then Tuesday's follow-up were poignant because they presented each of us with direct questions up here on the board. What are our choices? We want misery. We want blessing. We know the answers. Scripture is very clear on it. And just before we close, please know that my prayer is for your sanctification. And without your, quote, living the things taught from this pulpit this past week, you will remain miserable. And trust me, from my vantage point, some of you are miserable. And that's hurtful. That's hard to swallow, but it's true. Even though you paint a smile on your face every day. Now, as we head on back to our pre-Father's Day special lessons, the Spirit wants me to give you yet another visual aid up here on the board. Living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor stand than trying to climb up. Does that make any sense? That's the visual. Living the spiritual life is more like being, avoid, avoiding being dragged off the victor stand. In other words, don't you already have victory in Christ? You do. So then why don't you just stay up there? Because your enemies drag you off. You have a stickiness to the old life but yet you've been made victorious in Christ Jesus. It's true. So that visual sticks with me anyways. It's, you know, living and maturing even is more about not being, is being knocked down less than climbing up more. Does that make sense? And that's kind of like why I think he's been doing a lot. Everybody in here will say this. What's he been doing a lot for the last few years? Scraping. Scraping away. You know, not just bad doctrines, not just false things, but garbage in the soul, scar tissue, things we've done to ourselves, things we thought were right, and then we say, oh, it actually turns out it wasn't right. (laughs) Scraping that away. All that good work was so that you could essentially stay up with that perspective, the victor's perspective, longer for more of your life. Because that's all the world and our enemies are trying to do. They're trying to knock you off. And so I think of it that way, living the spiritual life. It's funny because if you've been placed at the top, what, what kind of exertion do you have to do if you're at the top? Nothing. There's no climbing involved. You just have to stay there. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, so you're, it, you know, I hope that makes sense. 
In other words, if you're already victorious in Christ, and you are as a believer, then guess what? You're already standing in the right place on the victory platform. Or at least you are positionally. Yet the father of all lies, the devil, tears us experientially off the stand. I think I'll leave you with that. I think that's a maturity perspective, quite honestly. I think a lot of people come to church, churches across the country, across the world, looking to climb up. How do I climb up? How do I, how do I leave this thing behind and climb up? When the Scripture says, but you don't have to climb anywhere. Christ already climbed that thing. He already defeated death. You're on the victory stand already. Wait a minute, what? You mean someone's been lying to me? Yeah. The world, Satan, they lie to you all the time. Oh, you're not a victor yet. No, 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 you have to work for it. Here's a little religion I've concocted, so says Satan, right? Here's a little, you know, a little uh, wheel that you can jump on. A little treadmill. And you run on that until you're exhausted. And then just make sure that when you, you realize you can't cast your anxieties on God, on Him, because you can't, then you blame God for it. Just do that, okay? So I'm going to give you the religion that's going to wear you out. And at the end of that, when you figure out that that don't work, just make sure you blame God. And God's like, um, how about this? How about read your Bibles? How about that? How about go to church? How about read the blog? How about read the book? Whatever, whatever grace is coming from the pulpit. How about you do that thing? Because I'm the one who ordained those things for you. And you say, I don't You know, I read it three words a minute. Fine. Fine. That's two words faster than DJ. I'm sorry. You don't mind me busting, do you? All right, I'm sorry. Unless it's in caps, because then it's like 500 words a minute. So there you go, right? So what? So God made a mistake? No, Pastor Ed, you made a mistake. You shouldn't be telling me to read this stuff. You're mistaken. No, I'm not. I'm really not. God knows how fast you can or cannot read. God knows your level of comprehension. I mean, heck, I got a 15-year-old son who reads everything. I'm not trying to shame him. I'm just saying he's 15. Oh, but he's so smart, isn't he? Oh, whoa, whoa, settle down. <laughs> Actually, I am very smart, you know. <laughs> Have you seen my grades? I mean, this is what I'm saying. In other words, I'm not mistaken when I say these things. God said, tell them to read these things. Tell them to read their Bibles. Write some blogs and have them read them. Write some books even. Have them read them too. He didn't make a mistake, and I didn't make a mistake, honest to goodness. You think I want you to read that stuff because it's good for me? Because I'm selling my books? <laughs> Seriously? I'm not trying to make a profit. The profit's for your soul. So you either, you either trust God in your life or you don't. Or else you're a double-minded person who ought to expect what? Nothing. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege of studying Your Word here this evening. We ask for Your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.